Yes, Lord, open our eyes that we might see glorious things out of your law. Well, perhaps my favorite of all the Narnia stories, and I must confess, when I was a kid, I must have read them probably 20 times all the way through. My favorite is perhaps The Horse and His Boy. If you're not familiar with it, the hero is a young boy named Shasta, who has been brought up in poverty in the land of Kalorman. And then one night he finds out that he's actually a foundling, and that the man who he calls father took him as a baby from a boat that had washed up out of the sea, and now he's planning on selling Shasta as a slave. So Shasta escapes. He joins up with a runaway princess and and a couple of talking horses, and together they travel toward the free lands of the north, Narnia and Arkenland. But along the way, he and his companions uncover a plot, a wicked plot by the rulers of Kalorman to wage a surprise and unprovoked attack on the free lands. And so now, the race is on. Shasta's company has to get a warning to the kings of the north before the enemy arrives. And the journey is grueling. And Shasta suffers many hardships in order to get the message through. And in the end, they do arrive in time. And Arkenland and Narnia are saved. But even then, in the process, Shasta is himself separated from the others and gets hopelessly lost. And it's night. He's utterly exhausted. He's completely hungry. He's terribly lonely. And he holds a miserable little pity party for himself. Well, it's at this point that someone shows up. Someone immense, someone imposing, walking along beside him. And since it's the middle of the night and there's thick fog, he can't see who this someone is. But it's clear that the someone is great and kind, as well as being a little bit terrifying. And he asks to hear Shasta's sorrows. So when Shasta has poured his heart out, the someone explains how it was he himself who had been guiding Shasta all throughout his life. He has been the one directing Shasta's story. And then when the the sun rises and the fog lifts and Shasta's vision clears, he sees the one who's been talking to him, and it's Aslan, the great lion who in Lewis's writings is a representation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as it turns out, Shasta's story is just part of a much bigger story with all of its trials, with all of its difficulties. One that Aslan has been superintending not only for Shasta's good, but for the rescuing of many lives and the saving of the kingdom. A story within a story. Now, The Horse and His Boy is a work of fiction. But as we're going to see in our passage of Scripture today, this is actually how God operates in the world, in this world, this world that he created, that he rules over as Lord. So please turn in your Bibles now to Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4, if you're using the blue Bibles in the seats in front of you, it's on page 224. (laughs) 
Now, for the past couple of weeks, we've been enjoying this delightful little story about Ruth and Boaz and Naomi. And we've seen God's intricate care, intricate involvement in all the small details of their lives. He's been caring for them. He's been guiding their actions. But now today we're going to see how they also fit into God's much larger plan. Not to put too fine a point on it, his plan to save the world. So let's briefly recap. Last week we saw that Ruth the Moabitess, at the urging of her mother-in-law Naomi, went secretly at night to the threshing floor and went up to Boaz, who was lying down at the heap of grain, and she lies down at his feet. And in the night, Boaz gets startled out of sleep and he discovers, there's a woman at my feet. (laughs) And Ruth asks him to act as her kinsman redeemer since he is a near relative within the clan. Specifically, she asks Boaz, spread your wings over me since you are a redeemer. She's asking him to marry him. Marry her. So Boaz responds by blessing her, assuring her that he'll help. He'd be delighted to play the part of the Redeemer himself. I think he's fallen deeply in love with her. But there is a man who is a closer relative, and therefore that guy has the first right of redemption. But whether Boaz himself redeems, or whether the other guy redeems, Ruth is going to be provided for. Hint, you want to root for Boaz. Now now it's the morning, and Ruth has gone back to the city, back to Naomi, to await the outcome. Boaz had said that he'll sort it all out. So now I want you to begin reading Ruth chapter 4 and verse 1. As we see the Lord's Redeemer arise and act. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of these the presence of these sitting here, and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Well, if Boaz is going to win the girl, he has to secure the redemption rights, which he doesn't currently have. And it's early in the morning... So Bethlehem is just getting started. It's all astir. Everyone's starting to go out to work. And Boaz goes to the gate of the city. Now that's where the official town business would have been conducted. And when he sees this other guy, the closer relative, he comes and asks him to sit down. The guy sits down. He understands Boaz must have some matter that concerns him as well. And then Boaz goes out and gets ten of the city elders. These fellows are going to serve as official witnesses. They're not adjudicating the case. They're not acting as judges. They're acting as witnesses. So that all this can be done properly and in order with seven signatures in red ink. So then they sit down. 
Everyone's sitting down. Everyone in a big circle. And Boaz begins to address the other guy. Now the text doesn't give this guy a name. Boaz, of course, would have called him by his name. But the author of the Hebrew text just has Boaz call him something like Mr. So-and-so. We're going to call him Mr. So-and-so. It's kind of like how a comparison ad works on TV. Right? Think about it. It's the quicker, thicker picker-upper. Bounty, paper towels, picks up messes quicker, and each sheet is twice as absorbent. And then they show the side-by-side comparison, right? The picture of two kinds of paper towels, one bounty, and, and they're both trying to pick up, and one's doing a good job, and one's not doing a good job. So they have a side-by-side comparison of bounty and leading ordinary brand. Right? They don't name what the, the competitor, it's just leading ordinary brand. Well, the text is giving us a hint that compared with Boaz, this Mr. So-and-so is leading ordinary brand. He's not going to get the job done. So in front of the elders, Boaz tells Mr. So-and-so that they have some family business to discuss. I think he's kind of shrewd about how he goes about this. He doesn't mention Ruth right away. First, he talks about property. Naomi's back, he says. She's selling Elimelech's field. Now, that's the first we've heard about it, but it hasn't really been relevant up till now. So we need to keep the family property in the family. Do you want to act as the redeemer? Because you have first dibs. I'm after you. And we read that the other guy is willing. He's willing to add a field, probably at a good price. Willing to add it to his own estate. That sounds like a good prospect. And now Boaz lets the other shoe drop. Look at verse 5. Then Boaz said, The day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. So Boaz has left the additional condition regarding Ruth until the end of the discussion. And now he reads, Mr. So-and-so, if you will, the fine print. Oh, by the way, you know we're not just talking about a field, right? With the redemption rights comes the responsibility to raise up a son for Ruth, not in his own name, but in Malon's name, the name of the dead husband, so that his name will not be lost within Israel. Well, this changes the situation significantly. Before, Mr. So-and-so thought he was getting a great chance to to enlarge his estate. But now, if he marries Ruth and she bears a son, that son will be considered Malon's son. And one day the field will pass out of his ownership to the kid. This means, as commentator Ian Duggett says, that Mr. So-and-so would lose the field and there would be no benefit to his children and his estate to compensate for the costs involved 
of taking care of Naomi and Ruth. Right? So he's got he's to use this proceeds of this field to take care of Naomi and Ruth, but he doesn't, he's not going to end, end up getting any benefit from it after, after the kid supposedly comes along. So what a moment before had seemed to be a can't-miss real estate deal has suddenly become an investment nightmare. So he bows out. You take it. I can't jeopardize my inheritance. And they seal the bargain formally. He officially relinquishes his rights as a redeemer and he passes them to Boaz. And according to the custom of the day, he takes off his sandal and hands it over to Boaz. I do not know if he gets his sandal after everything's done, but back, or if he goes around that whole day without one. But that's not really important. Because what's important is that in this guy's eyes, the math didn't add up. But isn't it interesting how it ends up working out? He was concerned for his legacy. He was concerned for his estate. He was concerned for his inheritance, his future. He doesn't feel up to perpetuating the name of his kinsman. So what is his lasting legacy? We don't know his name. He's been forgotten. His own name, we don't know. Boaz's name, Boaz's name is still being passed down in honor today and will continue to be until the world's end. We know nothing of Mr. So-and-so. We see that our hero, who's the Lord's chosen redeemer, has successfully secured the redemption rights at some cost to himself. So now he formally takes up his responsibilities. Read verses 9 and 10. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Malon and Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So we hear... Boaz solemnly, gloriously vow before the elders of the people that he will act as the Redeemer. He will purchase the land. He will take this woman to be his wedded wife. He will fulfill all of the responsibilities of the kinsman Redeemer. The privileges and the costs are his alone. This is his moment of triumph. I think he's really excited that this turned out this way. And here in Boaz's words, we hear an echo of the triumphant exaltation that Jesus experiences as our Redeemer. I don't know if we think about this much. Like Boaz, Jesus is a happy Savior. He's happy about his role as our Redeemer. You know, he didn't come begrudgingly into this world to redeem his people. He loved to do so. He well, you know, yes, he's the man of sorrows, but there's also deep joy. There's deep joy in his work. He gladly covenanted with the Father to buy us back out of our spiritual poverty. And he knew the cost was going to be high, and yet he was eager and willing to come. He was willing to jeopardize his inheritance. He was willing to jeopardize his own life. And even when the time came to actually pay the cost of our redemption, all the hellish anguish and bitterness of death for our sins. Hebrews 12 says that he endured the cross despising the shame. 
Why? For the joy that was set before him. There might not have been joy at that moment, but the joy was in front of him. He was looking to it. The joy was on the other side. The hope that he would come out through death on the other side in triumph to sit at the right hand of God, having won for himself a beautiful bride. He is a happy savior. Because, like Boaz, Jesus is also proud of the bride he has obtained. He is proud of his church. He's proud of his people. Again, we read in the book of Hebrews, he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, he says, behold, I and the children God has given me. He's excited, he's proud to be the redeemer of his people. He's proud of his people whom he has redeemed. And even now he's at work. What's he doing? He's interceding, as the song we sang said. Even now he intercedes. Now he is at work, laboring to make his bride beautiful, adorned for her coming wedding day. He is purifying the church, sanctifying her so that he might present her to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish on the day that he takes her as his wife forever. He is proud of the bride he has obtained. So Boaz has joyfully assumed his redeemer responsibilities. Now he calls the the onlookers to witness his vows. Look at verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. Two words for the same place. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And here we see that as a result of Boaz's redeeming act, the Lord's blessing begins to be poured out in full. First, we see the blessing pronounced by the witnesses. Now, what exactly is the content of the blessing? Well, first and primarily, it's the blessing of seed. It's the blessing of offspring. The witnesses call upon the Lord to make Ruth fruitful like Leah and Rachel, the wives of Jacob. From them, you remember, came Jacob's twelve sons, and from them came the whole tribe, twelve tribes of Israel. So this is very beautiful. Notice this. They're comparing this Moabite woman, this outsider, to the founding mothers of Israel and asking the Lord to give her offspring just as he did for those women. They further request that Boaz's house be made like the house of Perez, the son of Judah by Tamar. Now this is also a really cool reference, because now you're, you're getting closer. Not the founder of the nation, this is the founder of their city. Perez is the ancestor of the Israelites. He's the founding father. And then the other really cool thing is Tamar whose Perez's mother was a, was a Canaanite. She was an outsider too, just like Ruth is. 
But despite her outsider status, she was joined to Israel. She became the mother of one of the greatest Israelite houses. You go read her story in Genesis 38, and I think you'll find it very interesting reading indeed. And you can go and ask BJ about it. So you see, the primary blessing in view, the primary blessing in view is offspring. Make the Lord, may the Lord make you and this wife whom you are taking to be exceedingly fruitful. The second blessing they ask for is that Boaz himself might receive a great name. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. Now I want you to notice that these blessings are Abrahamic blessings. They're the blessings of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Think about it. Offspring, too numerous to count, and a great and glorious name. Those are blessings of the covenant. So now we see how the Lord brings those blessings, which up to now have just been spoken, like, oh Lord, make it happen. Now we're going to see how those blessings come to fulfillment. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They name him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Very good. You got all your your answers right back in the share time. So God sends them the child that has been prayed for, has been asked for. He sends them a firstborn son. And everyone just is beside themselves with joy because this child represents a huge reversal. The reversal of all the bitterness and the emptiness that this story started with. You might notice how the emphasis goes back to Naomi, right? All the women of Bethlehem come to rejoice with her because this started out as her story. And when she first came back to Bethlehem, it was the women who had asked in astonishment, oh my goodness, is this really Naomi? And she told them of all her pain and the bitter lot and the emptiness that the Lord had brought her to. But now the Lord has done something wonderful. He has provided this destitute and empty widow with a, a son of her own, kind of. So they say, blessed be the Lord who has not left Naomi without an heir, right? Before, widowed no sons. She's, she's in danger of being entirely cut off. Now she has a son. Because the baby boy is considered to be both the son of Boaz and the son of Ruth's first husband, Malon, according to Israelite law. In fact, this kid has parents coming out of his ears. He's counted as Malon's son. He's essentially Elimelech's son and heir. He's called Naomi's son. And of course, he's Ruth and Boaz's son. I count five. He's got lots of parents. And so, now can you see it? The ladies, they're like a bunch of good fairies coming around and they all bestow their blessings on the child. They call the kid 
Naomi's redeemer, right? Boaz has been the redeemer, but now they call the child Naomi's redeemer because he's going to restore her life and nourish her old age. He's just a tiny little thing right now. But this guy is light and life and food and drink to her. They even give, help give him his name, Obed, which means servant. Maybe that means that he's been brought to serve this family and, and uh, bring them out of the situation they were in. And then notice how Ruth is honored. She is called the blessed daughter-in-law whose love is better than seven sons because she has now born Naomi an heir. Wonderful woman that she is. Well, it's, we got what we wanted, right? They all live heavily ever after. So what, what happens? Naomi goes from empty to fullness of joy. Ruth has gone from being a pagan outsider to a faithful mother in Israel, safe under the wings of the Lord, safe under the wings of Boaz, her redeemer. Boaz, he's still a worthy man, but now he's a worthy man with an excellent wife whose worth is far above jewels. You know, actually, it's, it's kind of interesting. In some of, the, in some of the Hebrew Bibles, in the arrangement, Ruth comes right after Proverbs. And what's the end of Proverbs, right? The, the story of the excellent wife whose, whose worth is far above jewels. And then what comes right after? In the Hebrew Bible, it's Ruth. She is this worthy wife. He's got a promising son. He's got a name of renown. Everything's just turned out wonderful. So we cue the swelling music and the strings and the, the timpani and then the, get the end credits. Nope. Not yet. Because as lovely as this story is, now the author zooms out. And we're about to see how the Lord has just really a lot more going on here than one happy family ending. Pick it up at verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron followed, fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And so we get to see, as with a wide-angle lens, the Lord's big picture. The story of Ruth and Naomi is a little story within a much, much larger story that God is working out. Their little story, here's how I might summarize it. It's how the Lord restored a destitute house by providing a redeemer and a son. That's the little story. The Lord has restored a destitute house by providing a redeemer and a son. But that's just a miniature, right? That's a miniature of what God is doing to the whole nation of Israel. The the book of Ruth takes place in the days when the judges ruled. We saw at the beginning that chaotic time and everyone was just running around doing what was right in their own eyes. And for most of them, what was right in their own eyes was to rebel against the Lord. So there was no king in Israel to shepherd them. They keep sliding backwards into this awful cycle of rebellion and sin. During this time in the story, the whole house of Israel is destitute and empty. Not just Naomi's family, 
The whole house of Israel is destitute. And what does God do? Out of Ruth and Boaz's line, he provides Israel with a royal son, David the king. And for a while, things look great. Because David is the seed who restores the destitute house of Israel. He's the shepherd king. He's the man after God's own heart. And God actually enthrones David upon Mount Zion, his holy hill. And he begins to bring to David the obedience of the nations. And Israel is redeemed through David the seed. But we, we can't even stop there. We've got to zoom out even farther. Because then we see that even great King David himself is a story within a story. In 2 Samuel 7, the Lord came to David and made a covenant with him. And what, what did God promise? He promised that he would establish David's house, David's dynasty. He would establish David's house forever. And God will raise up for David an offspring after him. And this offspring, this son of David, would build a house for God's name. God himself would be a father to this son, and his love would never ever depart from this son. And the Lord would establish his kingdom and his throne forever. Well, that that doesn't happen quickly. I mean, Solomon fulfills it to a degree, but but these promises are far, far greater, far, far lasting, right? An eternal kingdom. David, David's house, in fact, falls into rebellion and decay, almost like the judges. And it's, it's another thousand years. And the nation of Israel continues in cycles of rebellion that lead to exile, that lead to domination by their enemies. And it doesn't sound like this story is going to have a happy ending after all. Until, in the fullness of time, an angel of the Lord is sent to a young lady in Israel named Mary. And she's engaged to be married to a man from the line of David. They're not married yet. The lady is a virgin. And yet the angel tells her, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great And we called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So Jesus is the one to whom all the promises of David have come. He is the fulfillment of Ruth's story. In the fullness of time, a virgin conceives. The Lord sends a son. But who is this son? So let's think to all the categories we've been dealing with in Ruth and in the Old Testament as a whole. Because Jesus is what? He's the royal son. He's of the line of David, whose throne is established forever and ever, and his kingdom has no end. He is the king who, who looks out at Israel, harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd, and he takes it upon himself the responsibility to become their good shepherd. He's the fruitful son, used by God to build up the whole house of Israel. 
But not only that, the Lord, that's too small a thing, Isaiah says. So the Lord makes him a light to the Gentiles, a light to the nations, so that God's salvation will reach the ends of the earth. And all the ends of the earth will become the fruit of this son. He's the offspring of Abraham. He's the true heir who receives all the blessings of that covenant. He receives the great name. He establishes the great nation. In fact, he receives the inheritance of all the nations. And then, if we use our widest angle lens, he's the son who was promised all the way back in the garden after we fell into sin. He's the seed of the woman, right? Ruth bears a son. She... Obed is the seed of the woman, but Jesus is the ultimate seed of the woman who has been sent to crush the head of the serpent, though the serpent will for a time crush his heel. And like Obed, this son is the, is the restorer of life. He's going to take the curse of our sin and reverse it and give us blessing instead. And he's the redeemer who buys back those who are ruined and made destitute by sin, who in fact raises sinners from death into newness of life, right? It says of Obed that he's going to be the restorer of life to Naomi. Jesus is the restorer of life who raises us from the dead to live anew. So this is the big picture. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, born to be our king, born to be our shepherd, born to be our Redeemer. And why did God provide this Son? Because you needed Him. Because I needed Him. Because without Him, all of us would miserably perish in our sin. But He is, in fact, provided. And He still, today, is bringing redemption to sinners through his death on the cross. If you will have him, he will redeem you. Will you have him? Will you take him to be your own? See, all of us have our own little story, don't we? We all have our lives with our joys and our triumphs and our struggles and our sorrows. And and we've seen in the book of Ruth how all those things really do matter to God. God himself is directing your story personally, individually, even in all of its particulars. Jesus says he knows the, the number of the hairs on your head. But just like Ruth, your story is part of this much larger one. And God is superintending the great story and shepherding it all the way to its wonderful conclusion. And it's going to be the happiest of all happy endings. One where His Son, the Redeemer, dwells forever in blessing and renown and glory with His precious bride. The people whom He has redeemed by His blood. And that story, you know, happily ever after, that's, the, that's when the story ends. But that's, that story never will have an end. That, that happiness is truly ever after. It'll go on and on and on and on for eternity. Jesus dwelling in bliss with his precious bride. So, your story, part of a much larger one. Now, right now, some of you have already been included into that 
that story in a way that blesses you because you've taken Jesus to be your Redeemer. Some of you, some others of you, have not yet. You have thought that you're keeping yourself at a distance from that story. Reality is that's impossible. That's impossible. You can't be outside of God's story. All it means is right now that you are not in the story in a way that ends up with you being blessed, but in a way that ends up with you being excluded and, and your line extinguishing and you going into nothingness, you going into hell. But come to the Redeemer. Insert yourself into the blessed part of this story so that you also can know and experience forever the joy that's here in this story. Now you, being little story inside the big story, that that should provoke a couple of responses in us, I think. One's a response of humility. Here's how I'd say it. As he works out our individual plans, the Lord is working out his big plan. That means we are not the be-all and end-all. We are a part of his glorious purpose. Now, sometimes you and I can't look past the nose on our face. We're all wrapped up in our little selves and our, our own little stories. But God commands us to give ourselves to his purpose by believing in the son he has provided for us and living our little lives for him and his purposes and promoting his kingdom. So it it, it should provoke humility in us. You know, we're significant, but we're not ultimately or primarily significant. God's story is significant. The other response is a response of hope. Because as he works out his big plan, the Lord is working out our individual plans. And this should make us grateful and hopeful. We're not just pawns in his chess game, pawns that he doesn't care anything about. We're significant to him. And how do we know that? Well, it's because he gave individual sinners to his son. He gave his son sheep, whom Jesus says that he knows by name, that he would redeem with his own blood. We're significant just not primarily significant. Our actions are significant, too. God is working out his great purposes through our actions. I mean, look at Ruth and the cosmic significance of her faithfulness. What does she do? She goes out to glean. She goes out to glean. What's the result? Well, she meets Boaz, and she asks him to redeem her, and he does, and the Lord gives them a son who's the grandfather of David, from whose line comes God's Messiah. So Ruth goes out to glean, and salvation comes to the whole world. Right? See, our acts of faith are meaningful. There's an old proverb that goes, kind of, so you've got to reverse this proverb in your mind here. There's an old proverb that says, For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. And all for the want of a horseshoe nail. 
Well, okay, that's the negative side of it. But now think of it the other way. Our ordinary, everyday acts of obedience and love to Jesus Christ, our everyday deeds of faith that we carry out to his glory in our little lives. Think the good works that you're going out today planning to do. If you're in Christ, God's prepared good works for you. We've learned that in Ephesians. You probably have some in mind that you're planning to go out and do today. They have repercussions. We don't know how much the ripple effect of that is going to be. Ruth didn't know that when she went out to glean that morning that it was going to result in the birth of the Messiah. But our, our good deeds, our acts of love and our deeds of faith are caught up into God's glorious plan and used by him for who knows what glorious and eternal good. So, child of God, be happy. Because he cares for He cares for his kingdom, and he also cares for and values you and what you're about. See, one day Jesus was teaching his disciples, and he was talking about the Father's care for them. This is in Luke 12, and how that meant they didn't need to be worried. The Lord would provide for their needs. Instead, Jesus says, seek his kingdom. And all these things will be added to you. You get that? So give yourself, right? What's the message? Give yourself in service to his glorious big picture of the gospel. Give yourself to his kingdom. But then he immediately continues with these words. Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So unto us, this Son is given. Unto us, a kingdom is given. Plenty to hope in. Plenty to rejoice in. As we see our story within his great one. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that though we are but dust and ashes... You, you make us lovely because you love us. And your redemption through the the Lord Jesus Christ gives us eternal significance and you plan on giving us the kingdom. You plan on bestowing us with a rich reward the likes of which we can't even imagine. Why would you do that? not because of our worthiness, not because of our righteousness, but because the Lord Jesus Christ has chosen to love us. He has taken us to be his own. He has died for our sins. He has given us his righteousness. He has become our Redeemer. Lord, help us to to glory in that reality. Help us to see ourselves with a right perspective. Not to see ourselves as, as if we were all that, you know, We were all that and then some, but to realize that we are because we've been brought into your great gospel story. Lord, I pray for those who yet remain outside of that story and uh, and who will, if they do not turn and repent, will spend eternity away from you in hell. Oh Lord, oh Lord, let them not be myopic. Let them not be unwilling to see 
that they cannot know the glory of that unless they bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And Lord, allow them to do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, now we get to come to the table.